Amen. So much to give thanks for, and we're thankful for all that God has done. Our boys and girls are going to be dismissed out now. They're heading back through these double doors to their junior church time. And let's take our Bibles, turn to the book of Romans this morning, Romans chapter 8. I want to preach on Thanksgiving this morning from Romans chapter 8 and focus on, I think, the biggest thing of all that we had to be thankful for, and that is our salvation in Jesus Christ. Last week we looked at those three wonderful short verses there in 1 Thessalonians. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. I was doing some reading this week, and I don't know if you realized or not, but it was 400 years ago this month that the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock. And so next year, if my math is correct, will be the 400th anniversary of the first Thanksgiving in America. And so this Thanksgiving, though, 400 years ago, they were just landing after that long, arduous journey across the Atlantic on the Mayflower. And if you remember, even before that, the pilgrims had faced much persecution for their faith. They wanted the freedom to practice their religion, to serve God and do it in freedom without a king or some dictator type of organization or some church trying to dictate to them instead of letting the Word of God dictate them. And so they left over in Europe, started out in England, moved around a little bit, and then came here and 400 years ago landed there at Plymouth Rock. They went through then what was an extremely hard winter. If you know the history, you'll know that I think over half of the group perished during that winter. And so it's amazing to think that they were able to still come together and have Thanksgiving the next year. They had been through a year that I would say is far harder even than the year that we've been going through this year. And yet they were still able to give thanks to God after it was all said and done. How could they do it? How, what was it like? We may not fully understand their situation in this life, but we have our own situations to face, don't we? Can we face the situations that we're in with joy and thanksgiving? Do you have a reason to be thankful this morning, or are you just here with your Sunday face on? You know, I think sometimes we try to put on our Sunday best and come to church and pull it all together and hope that somehow, for a few minutes at least, we can push away the doubts and fears and struggles and pains of this life just, just for a little while. But I want to encourage you this morning that the answer you need is not just coming to church for a little while and then trying somehow to just push through the rest of the week. Because the gospel is not just a temporary band-aid, it is a permanent cure for what we need. Colossians chapter 2 verse 10 says this, And ye are complete in Him. We have everything that we need in Christ, which is the head of all principalities and powers. You're with me in Romans chapter 8 this morning. And here, in this wonderful chapter, and we could preach for weeks and weeks out of this one chapter, but we're not going to do that. We're just going to focus on one verse this morning. 
one verse out of this great chapter. I want you to look with me down to verse number 34. Verse number 34. God's Word says this, Who is He that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Have you ever been accused of something that you didn't do? I had a boss at work who used to say, there's no good deed that goes unpunished. Sometimes that's how it feels, doesn't it? Being accused for something that you didn't do is not a fun thing. And children understand this if you have siblings. Who made the mess? It wasn't me. It was them. No, it wasn't me. Why do you always think it's me? Right? Sometimes that's how life feels. Being accused for things that we didn't do. And when that happens, we want to maintain our innocence and to maintain it strongly. But here in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, we have something even more uncommon and beautiful. Because here we have the protest of a justified sinner proclaiming that his character is clear and his conscience is clean even in the sight of heaven. The claim of this believer is not his own righteousness. The Bible's clear. Our, our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Rather, his claim is the perfect mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ, which gives him this confidence. Here in this verse, we have four pillars of our foundation in Christ. And those are the four things that I want us to focus on this morning. Each one of these pillars is strong enough on its own to support our faith. Even, yes, to hold up the weight of the sin of the whole world. And yet God has given us these four pillars together. And together, even though by themselves each is strong enough, together they make a bond that's so strong it could never be broken. God has given us four reasons, not just one. One would have been enough, but He gives us four reasons in one verse. You say, why did He have to give us so many reasons? Well, because we're very weak. We are very weak. Often we condemn ourselves. Not only are we weak, but we live in a very wicked world that comes at us and tries to condemn us and throw things back in our face and say, you hypocrite! The events of the past few weeks and months have been enough for many Christians to struggle in their faith. As we look at the health issues, as we look at the racial tension, as we look at the problems in our world, we can feel great condemnation. So this morning, I want us to focus on God's blessings in salvation. He's given us these four pillars to encourage us and to ground us in the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul here in Romans 8.34 cries out to the whole world, including heaven 
and even hell in his question, who is he that condemneth? But before we think that he might have spoken too boldly, because that sounds like a pretty bold statement, doesn't it? Who, who is he that condemns? Who can condemn me? Notice the four reasons for why we can never be condemned. I'm going to list them for you quickly, and then we're going to go back and examine each one. We see them right here in the first. First of all, he says Christ has died. Secondly, he said Christ is risen again. Thirdly, Christ is at the right hand of God. And Christ makes intercession for us. So this morning, we're going to look at each of these four pillars of truth of our faith, and we will then take up the apostles' challenge for ourselves and say with him, Who is he that condemneth? So number one, the Christian can never be condemned because Christ has died. In his death, Christ paid the full penalty for our sin. He paid the debt for every sin you could possibly ever commit. And there are some people who think, well, I know He's forgiven me, but what if I do this? Or I've sinned pretty bad. You don't know where I've come from. You don't know what I've done. I want to encourage you this morning. Christ died for those sins too. He died for them all. The sins of the whole world. 1 John 2.2 2 says it this way, and He is the propitiation, He's the payment for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. That ought to encourage us, that ought to give us great confidence, not only in our own faith, but to be able to share that faith with others, because Christ died for their sins too. Christ died for your neighbor's sins. Christ died for your co-worker's sins. Christ died for your family members' sins. Christ died for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 1.7 says it this way, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sin. I'm so thankful for the blood of Jesus Christ this morning that forgives us of all sin. It forgives us, and I love the ver word here in this verse, it cleanses us. It washes it all away. Oh, Christian, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've come from, you can take great comfort in the death of Christ on the cross. The devil, the great accuser, or some other person may come along to you and he may say, look at your sin. Look at what you've done. Look at who you are. And you can look right back at them with confidence in your eye and look them right in the eye and say, Christ died for my sin. It's all forgiven. It's under the blood. Praise the Lord. There's more than enough in the death of Christ to pay for your sin. His death was sufficient to pay for the sins of the whole world. We know we cannot be condemned because... Christ died for us. Oh, we could stay the whole time here on this first point and go back and examine the death of our Christ and His crucifixion as He hung on the cross and He took our sins upon Him. As He hung there and the Father turned His back upon Him because He took the sins of the whole world and God the Father could not look on God the Son because He could not look on sin. But Christ died for our sin. The second reason, the second pillar, follows right after the first. 
The Christian can never be condemned because Christ died for our sins. Secondly, the Christian can never be condemned because Christ has risen again. I want you to notice back in our text here, though, there's two little words that you might have missed. They could be easy just to breeze right past, and yet, as Paul was penning these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these are included for emphasis to draw our attention to the fact that Christ is risen from the dead. Notice with me, he says, it is Christ that died, here's the words, yea, rather, that is risen again. This is as if to say, it is a powerful argument for our salvation that Christ died. But there is an even more powerful argument. There is an even more powerful truth that every believer can take great confidence in that we shall be saved. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is what gives us hope for eternal life. Often we focus more on the cross than we do on the empty tomb. There is more encouragement in the fact that Christ rose from the dead than that He was just nailed to the cross. I'm not minimizing the fact that He was nailed to the cross, but it is even more encouraging to us that He rose again. It is true that the death on the cross was the payment for all of sin's debt, but the resurrection was the public acknowledgement that sin's debt was paid. The Apostle Paul wrote this, he said, Without the resurrection, we would be of all men most miserable. I'm so thankful for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was that public declaration that He truly had paid for our sins in His death on the cross. Remember with me, if you will, the time when Jesus was teaching to a house full of people. And four men brought their crippled friend and trying to get through the door of the house, they couldn't make their way in because there were too many people. And so they went around by the stairs and went up onto the roof of the house. And the Bible tells us that they took apart the roof, they tore it open, and they lowered him down through the hole in the roof down to the feet of Jesus. And as that man lay there at the feet of Jesus, Jesus looked over at him and said, Thy sins be forgiven thee. And if you remember what happened after that, many people that were there in the crowd, many religious people, listened to what Jesus said about sins being forgiven, and they began to think in their heart this thought, Who can forgive sins but God? They thought that Jesus was blaspheming by saying that He could forgive this man's sin. So Jesus, because He's God and knew their thoughts, He looked at them, knowing what they were thinking, and he said this, Is it easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or rise, take up thy bed and walk? Of course, we know it's easy to say, Your sins are forgiven, nobody really knows. But to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk is a something else entirely, because that requires a physical demonstration of some internal change coming out. And Jesus looked at the man and he said, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. And the man bent down and he picked up, he rolled off his bed, picked it up, stood up, and he went out rejoicing in the Lord to the great astonishment of all the people who were there. I want you to think of that in relation to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
as he hung on the cross, he paid for our sins. We know that because the Bible tells us that. But when he rose again the third day, he demonstrated for the whole world to see that he had power over sin and over death. That's why I think Paul, when he wrote this, drew attention to this second one, yea, rather, that he is risen from the dead. There is great hope in the death of Christ because he died for me. There's great hope in his burial because he was buried for me. My sins were buried with him. But in the resurrection, our hope ought to break out in joy and in song, in praise and thanksgiving to God. Jesus was victorious over sin and over death. He is alive. Christian, you can take great encouragement. Christ is risen from the dead. How then can you be condemned? Who can condemn you? Christ rose again. If He was delivered, then you will be delivered too. If He rose again, if you're in Christ, then you too will rise again. Just like my sins were paid for by Christ and buried with Christ, so my eternal life is made evident in Christ. Sin has no more dominion over Him, and sin has no more dominion over me. His freedom is my freedom. His deliverance is my deliverance. Who can condemn the believer who is risen in Christ? What a powerful statement. Yea, rather, that is risen again. The Christian can never be condemned because Christ died. The Christian can never be condemned because Christ rose again. Again, we could stop there. We, we have enough proof. We have enough to give us great confidence. But I'm thankful that Paul didn't stop there. I'm thankful that God didn't have him stop writing only halfway through this verse. Rather, we still have two more pillars on which we can stand with great confidence that our faith is secure in Christ. Notice thirdly, the Christian can never be condemned because Christ is at the right hand of God. He says it here in our text, who is even at the right hand hand of God. In the previous point, we saw the words, yea, rather, being used in this verse to bring an intensification to the argument. We can take great confidence because of the death of Christ, yea, rather, at even greater confidence because of the resurrection of Christ. So does it just stop there? Or does it still get better? I mean, how can it get any better than this? Well, it can. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 8 through 10. You might know verse 8. It says this, But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But notice verse 9, He says, Much more than... Being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, 
much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Here in, back in our text in chapter 8 and verse 34, he says, He is even at the right hand of God. And by comparing Scripture with Scripture, we understand then from Romans chapter 5, because of Christ's life, because of what He's doing now then, we have even much more confidence because of what Christ has done. The argument for our confidence in Christ has even more force or power than Christ's death. It is because of Christ's life. Well, it is enough that Jesus died for you and for me. And it is enough to know that He rose again. And it gives us great confidence in our resurrection to know what He's done for us. His life and the fact that He's now living at the right hand of the Father gives us even more confidence. It's hard to believe. You say, that still seems a little impossible to me. Well, let me explain. Go back to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. The book of Hebrews was an epistle. I could have some of our New Testament survey guys answer this question. It was a New Test it's a, an epistle, a letter written to Jewish believers. So in this letter, there are lots of references to the Old Testament sacrificial system, to the priests, to the temple. And here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10 through verse 14, he's talking about the difference between Christ as the perfect high priest and the high priests in the Old Testament sacrificial system. Look at verse 10. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. See, that was very different than what the priests did, the Old Testament priests. Look at verse 11. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. See, if you were to go back and to visit the Old Testament tabernacle, you would have found something absent there that we have many of this morning. That was seats, chairs, places to sit. The priest in the Old Testament tabernacle didn't sit while he was working because there was sacrifices to be made. There was ministry to be done. So if you were to go and see that Old Testament priest, he would have been standing daily ministering. But notice the contrast in verse 12. But this man, Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. See, for the priest to be sitting, it meant his work was done. And when Christ sat down at the right hand of God the Father, He was signifying that it was finished, that His work was done. It says in verse 13, From henceforth, expecting till His enemies shall be made His footstool, for by one offering He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Because we have a seated Savior this morning. We know that the work of the atonement is complete. 
Here we can find great encouragement that no believer in Christ could ever lose their salvation because Christ Himself, the one who gave Himself as the sacrifice, as Hebrews tells us, He finished and He sat down. If there was any chance of His work not fully being done, Christ would not be sitting down. When He lived on this earth, He was always busy about His Father's business. He did not rest until His work was complete. This reminds us of the preceding verses here in Romans chapter 8, which say, verse 28, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose, for whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called, and whom He called, them He also justified, and whom He justified, them He also glorified. Now, when you look around us, you realize very quickly, we have not yet been glorified. I look around this morning, and I doubt most of you woke up this morning and said, Yay! Right? Your body said, Oh! He looked at the clock and said, is it that late? Oh, we got to hurry. Why? Because we haven't been glorified yet. We're still in our earthly bodies. And there's so much in this world, so much in our lives, so much in our situations that we face all the time that we look around and we say, this isn't any fun. Mm. 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 Life is hard. But when you read those verses in Romans chapter 8, it's very interesting because if you look at the grammar there, everything's written as if it's already taken place. From eternity past to eternity future. Then he also glorified. You say, it hadn't taken place yet. Christ's work is complete. He started it from eternity past. He demonstrated it when He came to this earth and died on the cross, and then He rose again. And now He's seated at the right hand of the Father because it is finished. There's so much encouragement for us as believers here this morning in the fact that Christ is alive and He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. He's not still running around trying to make sure everything happens just right so we maybe, just maybe, it all works out and we get glorified. No, it's done. We haven't fully realized it yet. And we won't fully realize it until He comes back and takes us home to be with Him. Then, the Bible says, our faith will become sight. But the work of Christ in salvation is complete. And because He's alive, sitting at the right hand of the Father, we can take great encouragement this morning. So we know He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and I realize this particular verse doesn't point out the fact that He's seated, but I wanted you to see that from Hebrews because it's really interesting to think about those priests up and busy working around versus Christ being seated. And the author of Hebrews points out that contrast. It's important. 
So I want you to go back with me, though, to our text in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, because it says, Who is even at the right hand of God. The emphasis is here that he's at the right hand of God. What does that mean? Well, the right hand of God is a place of honor, majesty, and favor. It is a place of acceptance. Christ is our representative. The Bible even tells us He is the head of the church. To sit at the right hand of God is to signal God's acceptance. How can you condemn the one that is sitting at the right hand of the King of Kings? Who is he that condemneth? It would be absurd to condemn that which has been accepted by the King. By faith, I am in Christ. And in Christ, all believers are accepted and are at God's right hand. The right hand of God is a place of acceptance. But secondly, the right hand of God is a place of power. The right hand of God signified God's acceptance, but it also signified God's power, His ability, because the right hand was the arm of strength. What can destroy you or who can condemn you if omnipotence is there to help you? You can rest secure in God's almighty power. No one can harm you when the almighty is your protector and friend. We have an almighty savior. Until omnipotence can fail and the almighty is overcome then every blood-bought child of God is safe and secure forever. Praise the Lord. So does it make sense maybe now why Romans 5 says much more through the life of Christ we can take great confidence in our salvation? The Christian can never be condemned because Christ died. The Christian can never be condemned, yea, rather, because he's risen again. Much more than the Christian can never be condemned because Christ is at the right hand of God. But finally this morning, the Christian can never be condemned because Christ is making intercession for us. We know we have confidence because of the death of Christ. Yea, rather, we have confidence because of the resurrection of Christ. Much more than we have confidence because of the life of Christ. So what about this last phrase? Who also maketh intercession for us. Is there something here that continues on this theme of great confidence that we have? Because of the intercession of Christ? Or have we come to the top and now we're headed down, and yes, this is a good reason, but it's not as exciting as the previous ones. This could be the one that we might skip over. Okay, he's interceding for us, he's praying for us, he's, he's there speaking on our behalf. I understand what interceding is. But I want to take you back to Hebrews once again. Because I believe that rather than this being the least important reason, it's rather the strongest Look at Hebrews 7, verse 25. It says, Wherefore, He is able to save them 
to the uttermost. How does it get any better than that? Save them to the uttermost, them that come unto God by him, seeing, here it says it, he ever liveth to make intercession for them. There it is. Our theme of intercession goes right along with salvation, and he saves us to the uttermost because he's ever living to make intercession for us. So rather than being the weakest, this is, could be said as the strongest so I want to ask you a couple questions about intercession because I want you to understand this. Because this took me a little bit to think through and kind of in my own mind why this is so important. I think for the Christian who's been around church for a while, we've heard about intercession. We understand what that concept means. But maybe you're new and you say, I'm not really sure what that really means. Even if you know what intercession means, maybe you don't really understand the significance of it. So let me ask you this question. Why does Christ intercede for us in heaven? Why does He intercede for us in heaven? Well, God did not go down to earth to look for the payment for our sin. God the Father did not. Rather, the payment had to be brought to Him. In the Old Testament... They had the mercy seat, which was the place inside the Holy of Holies, there in the tabernacle, and later in the temple, the place where after the sacrifices were made, then the blood would be brought in and placed on the mercy seat. The payment, the sacrifice, had to be brought to the mercy seat. You didn't get to take the mercy seat out to the sacrifice. So when Christ intercedes for us in heaven, it's God, the righteous judge, sitting there in the courtroom of all creation, in the heaven that He created, and He's passing judgment. And the payment is brought by Christ in His shed blood, in His wounding, in His death on the cross. The payment was brought by Christ to the heavenly mercy seat and placed upon the throne of God. That's why He makes intercession for us in heaven. We cannot be condemned because the blood of Christ our Savior, our intercessor, His blood is on the mercy seat. Not your blood, not my blood. His blood. And because He is God, and the Son of God, He had access to come into that throne room and to place His sacrifice on that mercy seat on your behalf. So question one, why does Christ intercede for us in heaven? Question two, who is Christ and with whom? Or who is it with whom He is interceding? Well, think about that. Who is Christ? Jesus, according to Scripture, is, if we're saved, our brother, and God is our Father. But Jesus is interceding with His Father and our Father too. That's why it's significant who is interceding and who He's interceding to. 
You see, if you were innocent and accused of doing something wrong, you would probably want to plead your case. If it was the type of accusation that caused you to be brought into the court of law and you stood there on trial and somebody brought accusation against you, you would probably want to be able to speak up on your own behalf. And yet, depending on the situation, your lawyer might look over you and say, shh, be quiet, don't say anything. Because by speaking on your behalf and maintaining your innocence, you might instead incriminate yourself and cause greater harm to yourself. We understand this in our judicial system today. The, the testimony of a third-party witness carries more weight than the testimony of the accused. That third-party validation that comes in and speaks on someone else's behalf, those witnesses, and hopefully you even have more than one, who said, I saw that, I, I was there, I, I'm their alibi, I know what's going on, carries more weight in the court of law than the testimony of the accused. Christ is our advocate. He's the one who speaks on our behalf. And because it is He, my brother, speaking to my heavenly Father, His Father, on my behalf, I can take great confidence in my salvation. Greater confidence, yes, than even if I were to speak out on my own behalf. Because He can do a better job than I ever could. Because if it was you or me speaking on our own behalf, we would stand there, maybe try to stammer out a few words, and then all of a sudden some memory from the past, some regret, some guilt, some struggle, some previous accusation would probably come flooding back. Even if we managed to get a few words out, we'd have to hang our head in shame and walk away. But we don't have to speak on our own behalf because Christ intercedes for us. We can take great confidence in our salvation. We can thank God for what He's done. We can stand with strength on that pillar of Christ's intercession on our behalf. See, it matters that Christ interceded for us in heaven. It matters that Christ, who He is and who He's interceding to. This morning we've looked at these four props or pillars of the believer's faith. So in closing, I want to give a, a final appeal to you. What would you give, some of you, if you could have such a hope as this? Such confidence as this that Christ's work is complete. He died for you. He rose again. He's at the right hand of God the Father, and He's making intercession for you. Most people in this world are living in uncertainty, right? You, you spoke with a lady this week. Unsure. Uncertain. Turn on the news. Unsure. Uncertain. How do you know what to believe? What's going on? What do we do now? For the Christian, we ought to have absolute confidence 
But if you're here this morning and you don't have that confidence in what Christ has done for you, I would invite you this morning to turn to Him. Confess your sin and trust in Him today. Your confidence isn't in you or what you've done. Your confidence can be in Christ and what He has done. But you must trust in Him today. Will you repent of your sin? Will you receive Christ today? Don't wait any longer. Don't live in uncertainty and, and doubt. Trust in Christ and in Christ alone. Not in your works, not in your church attendance, not in your past, not in your parents. Trust in Christ. He will save you. He will save you now. But now for the believer, you may be here this morning struggling with doubts, with insecurity, with frustration. Others may question and even try to condemn you. Satan, the Bible calls him the accuser of the brethren. They try to slide up alongside you, whisper in your ear and say, you're no good. You don't fit in at that church. You're not good enough. They don't know about your past. If they did, they wouldn't be as nice to you. He'll try to bring accusations against you and your sin. So back to the beginning of our verse. Who is he that condemneth? Is it Satan? Is it your conscience? Is it your neighbor? Your parents? Your past choices? Who is he that condemneth? Your failures? Your guilt? This is a rhetorical question, and it assumes a response. Who is he that condemneth? No one. Nothing. Not because I don't deserve condemnation, but because as a believer, I'm in Christ. He died for my sin. He rose again. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. He's making intercession for you and for me. Now you say, well, I know that truth. In fact, this isn't the first time I've heard that truth. The reality is probably many of you knew that already, all of those things. Maybe for some it was the first time you'd thought about it that way. I want to challenge you with this, though, just knowing the truth doesn't always get us there, does it? We have to walk in the truth. We have to preach the truth to ourselves over and over and over again. We have to run back to the truth. Sometimes we feel like wherever we stand, the rug gets yanked out from underneath us. We feel like we just get to a place where we're ready to stand. There, there goes the old rug. The problem is we're standing on the wrong rug. We're supposed to be standing on the rock, right? That's Jesus Christ. 
But so often, we, we're, you may be trying to do right, but over time you get comfortable, distractions come along, life gets busy, and almost imperceptibly, you just take a step or two away. And you find yourself away from being with Christ like you should be. And then the old rug gets yanked out again. Say, why does it keep happening to me? Who is he that condemneth? Is it because Christ wasn't powerful enough? No. Because nobody can condemn me in Christ. So when I'm struggling, when I'm feeling condemned, what's the answer? Run back to Christ. He's not let you go. He never lets his children go. Sometimes we feel a distance between us, but that doesn't mean we've ceased to be his child. We're just not in the close fellowship that we ought to be. I think this morning, I know in my own heart, there are just those times when I'm struggling. I, you know, I can get up and put on my Sunday happy face. What about Monday, Tuesday, oh, Wednesday, you know? Maybe I'll just make it back to Sunday and then I'll be okay. Listen, life is going to beat you up. Life is tough. Sometimes life is great. It, it, it has all those ups and downs. But Christ is the solid rock on which we stand. All other ground, it's sinking sand. If you're hurting, if you're struggling, if you're discouraged, if you're depressed, if you're weighed down with the cares of this world, Christian, come back to Christ. He died for you. He rose again. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. He's making intercession for you right now this morning. You might be sitting in your seat. You might be listening at home online and you got just thoughts running through your head right now. Hey, what about this? What, what am I going to do about that? Who is he that condemneth? Christ is all we need. In our uh, church, when I was working for Brother Clayton, we used to sing a little chorus. Christ is all I need. Maybe you know it, maybe you don't. I'm going to try to sing it. It's pretty easy to learn. Has six or five words. Christ is all I need. So maybe you can pick it up with me and sing it with me here in a moment. Let's try it. Here we go. Christ is all I need. Christ is all I need. All, all I need. Christ is all I need. Christ is all I need, all, all I need. Pretty good. Let's sing it like we mean it this time. Now you know it. You know all five words. Okay, here we go. Christ is all I need. Christ is all I need, all, all I need. Christ is all I need. Christ is all I need. All, 
if that doesn't give you a reason to be thankful, then let me remind you, Christ is all that you need. We have so much to give thanks for. Yes, we can be thankful for God's abundant blessings, for health, for sustaining us financially, for strength to get out of bed, for direction and provision of jobs and raising our children. But for the Christian, may we never forget what we have in Jesus Christ. And even if this world rips away everything else that you hold dear, think about old Job in the Old Testament. When he learned that God was enough, that's when he came to the right place in his life. And maybe, just maybe, some of the discouragement and loss, questions, and difficulties that you've gone through over the last few weeks, months. And can I encourage you with this? It's not over yet. You say, that's not encouraging at all. It's not. It's not over. But may those drive us back to Christ to remember that He is everything that we need. Father, thank You for sending Your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord, work in our hearts this morning as you already are. Pray that you'd continue that work. And if there's somebody here this morning that's never trusted you as Savior, Lord, show them their sin and that their only hope is found in Jesus. Lord, I know many of the testimonies of the people gathered here this morning and most would profess you as, as Savior. Lord, even for the Christian this morning, we need the gospel. We need Jesus. His death, yes. His resurrection, yes. But His life and His intercession for us. For the one who's struggling this morning, they come to you, come back to you. Have their relationship restored this morning. Because no man, no one can condemn them in Christ. Lord, if they've allowed condemnation to keep them from you, it's because they're not trusting in what you've done for them. They're trusting in their own works. They're trusting in what they say they are. They're trusting in what other people say they are instead of trusting in what you have done and who you say they are. Work in our hearts now during this time of invitation. In Jesus' name I pray.